Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have Dr. Linda Shaw with me. She is a neuroscientist. She works in business as a business psychologist. She's the founder of an online program, Applied Neuroscience. And Linda, would you like to give 60 seconds on your background, please? My background is that I ran three businesses a while back now, the largest, I had 20 staff working for me. And then I went into academia and studied for nine years to get my doctorate in neuroscience plus two other degrees along the way. And then I decided to mash all of that together. And I came out of academia about 10 years ago. And I'm now a consultant and a speaker on how the brain changes behavior and behavior changes the brain. And we understand when we understand how that happens and when it happens, we can make sure that we're more in control of our business decisions than we previously thought. Excellent. So this is going to be very relevant to my audience. Let's start with the first question. So what are the four most common questions people ask you about neuroscience and its application? People often say, well, that's really interesting. And I go, no, 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 no. It's not just interesting. It's got a point. It's applied <laughs> neuroscience. You know, when people say, oh, that's really interesting, I go, oh, no, they've just said the interesting word. And um, That's a kiss of death, isn't it? Oh, God, it is. So interesting is great. And of course it's interesting. It's an embryonic science. It's, it's brand new. There's so much we've got to find out about the brain. We know so little still. And it's fascinating. I love it. But when people ask me about my work, I, I really try to make it clear that this is applied neuroscience. It's how, how we can use the brain to better our lives and our businesses. So that's one of the things. Another question that people, um, I, I wish actually people would ask more. Um, for instance, I've, I'm an adventure traveler. So I if I start talking about a country or doing something mad, I want them to say, I always say to people, have you been there or have you experienced this? Because people don't say that enough. They go trundling off as if I've just been to this place and la 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 la, not realising that actually the person or people they're speaking with have been there too. And so you look a bit silly. So I think the questions that I like to ask and be asked are things that clarify understanding so that you actually get to a point of a baseline where you can both contribute to the conversation as opposed to people talking at people. So they're the, the sort of questions I'm interested in. So what do you love about the work? Oh, no, how long have you got? What do I love about, about the 50 minutes. Um, my first degree was joint psychology with social anthropology. Because of my love of travel, clearly that's very much on the back burner for some time by the looks of things. But I'm fascinated why people do what they do and why cultures are so different and how we respond to one another. So I'm driven by understanding um, how we can actually have compassion for one another, how we can work together in a collaborative way and embrace differences because we can learn so much when we embrace differences. So that's what I love about it. I couldn't agree more. I think what frustrates and surprises me still is, and I, I kind of understand why people do it, because there's very much this them versus us, and uh, are you in my tribe or not? But it, it just strikes me as idiocy, where you cut off a large proportion of talent, whether it's women, whether it's non-whites, 
it doesn't really make any difference. Just cutting people off because they're not like us means that you only have a very limited perspective. So you only see things through one lens. And as a result, you may not be seeing the whole picture. But I'd like to build on something that you mentioned there. And do you see any difference in the way brains are formed, the structures, based on where someone comes from, the language, their their primary mother tongue? Do you see anything like that? The brain changes, as we know, because the neuroplasticity of the brain is phenomenal. And that changes um, bottom up, top down, and also from our social and environmental upbringing. So it changes depending on our thinking and thoughts, top down, and it also changes because of our DNA and our hormones and so on. But it's also our social environmental upbringing that make a huge difference to how we think. And indeed, even the anatomy of the brain, because everything changes the brain and and we are in control of that to a certain extent. And that's what's so delicious. So yes, different cultures think differently, different beliefs, different ideas, different, so many differences. But the key is curiosity. If we are curious about why people are different and how differently they do things or the way they think, then we learn. And when we learn, we better ourselves, don't we? I'm not suggesting that people take over our thinking. I'm just suggesting that we're open to a different way and different perspectives so that we can actually collaborate more. I suspect to a large extent, company culture will determine whether or not people apply that curiosity and whether they're overt or covert about it. Because in my experience, there are many organizations that say they encourage people to put their ideas in the hat. But when they do, they're either knocked down or ridiculed for it, or they are punished for it because it's considered to be speaking out. And without that curiosity, I agree, we don't learn. So what advice would you give to leaders in order to create the environment where curiosity is not only encouraged, but recognized and rewarded? I think at the moment, and it's often the case, but more so than ever, there's an awful lot of firefighting going on. Our leaders are trying very much to work out what on earth the next apparent new norm is going to look like and they don't want to get it wrong because this is a unique opportunity and it truly is an opportunity to make your business fly make it the you know one of the the leading components of your industry so this is a really good place to be but people are, are afraid of getting it wrong they're afraid of messing it up and it's a huge responsibility to do, do that so i think in order to embrace it we need to yes we've got to do the firefighting but at the same time we need everybody's perspective so that we can learn from it so that we can be innovative and we can create whatever this new thing is going to be to drive us forward and to be strong in the industry and in our marketplace so it's a case of I think listening to everybody with respect, helping everybody to feel significant in their contribution, and then coming together in a very transparent way to actually move forwards in a very positive manner. I'm looking at this crisis as a great opportunity. I mean, never waste a good crisis. I remember hearing about a Formula One driver, and he was in second position, and the chap who was in pole position crashed. And he was asked by a reporter at the end, when you saw that crash, did you slow down? He said, no, I accelerated. I knew everyone else would slow down. And I think we have to adopt that mentality in these conditions, because if we do, 
it is a, a gift. And I think we're on the cusp of another renaissance off the back of this. You know, um, after the plague hit in the 1400s, we got the renaissance. But I probably got my dates wrong. Um, but the reality is that crisis brings the best out in humanity as well as the worst. And your point about treating people with respect, encouraging people to contribute and be heard is critical. So tell me this, in your experience in the crisis, what changes in the way the brain operates and the hormones that are running through? And what can we do to ensure we're getting the right kind of hormones flashing our brains rather than the wrong ones? Well, to start with, of course, um, we all know about stress hormone cortisol. When there's a crisis and we're feeling, we're, we, we, what we do is we close down our focus to focus on the perceived threat, um, which is absolutely sensible. That's, well, of course, what we have to do. So we're closing down our perceived threat and we're really combing in on this. However, all the time, that means we're not being creative. We're not thinking outside of that focus which actually is not helpful, especially at the moment when we're looking for innovation, when we're looking for things to move forwards, as opposed to only be firefighting. So when cortisol, the stress hormone, is, is, is secreted in abundance, the problem with that is it, it controls or suppresses neurotransmitters. So when cortisol is up, serotonin is down. Now, serotonin is the happy chappy. It's all about mood, sleep, appetite and emotion. So when cortisol is raging around the brain, we don't eat properly, we eat too much, we don't eat enough, we're not sleeping properly, we're moody, we're irritable. That's not very helpful. That's going to cook. (laughs) My wife's just looking through the glass at me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Is that good or bad? I'm not entirely sure. I think you've just described me. Oh, okay. Well, I don't ever feel stressed. Maybe my wife and I should have a virtual coffee. So... (laughs) So cortisol also suppresses dopamine, and dopamine is all about motivation and anticipation and reward. So that is really, we really need people to be motivated to get up in the morning. So cortisol um, in raging around doing its thing, running amok, is not helpful to all of those other things. So we need to actually calm cortisol down so that the neurotransmitters can do their work in a much better way. We've also got the sympathetic nervous system, which is um, all about um, shutting things down and uh, making sure that we've got blood flowing to our muscles and making sure we've got the fight or flight thing happening. Great. But if you keep doing this, if you keep having cortisol raging around the brain or the sympathetic nervous system doing the thing, you're in this high level of anxiety, which can be very harmful. So what we need to do is engage the parasympathetic nervous system to say, okay, sympathetic nervous system, You've had your time. Time is up. It's my turn now. And let's calm everything down and get the organs working properly so that you can start thinking clearly. So that's some of the things that have been going on. So my uh, friend and mentor, Mark Galston, talks a lot about oxytocin as being the drug of choice in terms of helping build empathy, helping uh, people feel felt, feel respected, feel valued. How can one get a heightened level of oxytocin? Oxytocin is a delicious hormone. It's an antioxidant and an anti-inflammatory. So it makes us look younger. And... (laughs) and I'm actually 106. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, every illness we ever have, mentally, physically, will will involve inflammation. So oxytocin is a very useful chemical in in the body. Oxytocin is secreted in abundance when a woman gives birth. 
because she needs to bond with her baby. In the old days and in certain cultures even now, if a woman doesn't bond with her baby, the baby won't survive. So it's a very, very relevant chemical to be stimulated. In a business context, you can secrete a certain amount of oxytocin, not hugely, but with eye contact, smiling and a handshake, and that will build a bonding attitude or a feeling between you where you trust one another. The more you trust someone, the more they become trustworthy. So that's actually rather delicious feedback. But now, of course, we're online. Those things are not happening. Now, I would love to be engaging you in eye contact, Marcus, but if I'm looking at, so you can see my eyes, I can't see yours and yeah. vice versa because we're looking at the camera differently. So there's, a, there's an issue going on. So for me, the way in business now, if we are working virtually or continue to work virtually, will be to be transparent in our messaging and also to under-promise and overachieve. That's the way I'm, I'm handling it. I am giving more than my clients expect, which helps them trust me and, and I then trust them in back because we've got this, as I say, these lovely feedback loops going on. Very interesting. So in terms of the long-term impact that COVID is likely to have, both physically and mentally, what are you expecting to happen over the next few years? And is there a a longer lasting hangover effect that this will have in terms of triggering genes in people? One of the issues with lockdown when it first began was uncertainty. And the brain doesn't like uncertainty because it doesn't do gaps. If there are gaps, it it fills in the information from any which way it can. So for instance, at the beginning of lockdown, people would be feverishly watching the news Information, information, gimme, 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 gimme. I've got to fill in the gaps. I'm going to read John up the pub. I'm going to ring, or clearly not going to the pub, but ring the publican or whomever or friends or whatever. Information, information, information. Fill in the gaps with any stories that you decide from all of this information. And then in turn, you worry about that, that new stories that you've given yourself and probably will never happen. So the stress levels and the anxiety levels, apart from being isolated, which is extremely stressful. We're not meant to be isolated. Apart from being in fear of your, for your health, for fear for your finances, there's a huge amount. There's loads and loads of stuff going on. That uncertainty continues. I think people might be feeling a little bit different about the virus. Some people are, for sure. But they're now feeling uncertain about their finances and whether they're going to be made redundant at this point in time and what's going to happen with the economy. So the uncertainty continues. This, I think, what what goes on is we have got all these stress hormones now at an elevated level, which is in a chronic situation and continues to be so. But we're actually not completely aware of it because it almost feels like a norm. But we don't realise that this is going on in our system. So all we need is something else to trip us over the edge, like being made redundant, like, I don't know, house moving, if you can, all of those things. Then that will trip us over and we will become very poorly. We could have a, a level of depression, but there could be chronic depression or clinical depression, or it might just be not just, that sounds um, as if I'm belittling it. I'm certainly not doing that but a little bit more than fed up. 
So we've got certainly anxiety levels and people, you can see people are quite aggressive sometimes. If somebody gets too close to the, in the supermarket, you know, people bristle. And even out in the woods, if you're going for a walk, people are making this big wide berth of you. And if they don't, then people are getting upset. So everybody's running on high. And that is not good for us and can cause mental health issues eventually, if not sooner rather than later. So I I can see moving forward, the knock-on effect of this particular pandemic is an issue in terms of mental health. I'm curious about the genetic impact as well. In India, I think it was in the 1940s, there was famine and there are a group of Indians called who've been documented as thin, fat Indians. So they're uh, very svelte in terms of their physique. They walk 10 miles a day, but they have very elevated cholesterol levels. And they put it down to genes being triggered because of the famine. Either they were very young or uh, they were in the womb when their mothers were uh, starving. And it triggered a genetic uh, reaction. Is there a possibility of a genetic hangover from this as well that we might be feeling 10, 20, 30, 50 years down the road? I believe so. There could be an issue in terms of the genetic makeup. However, I'd want to stand on my desk at this moment and shout very loudly, our DNA is not our destiny. So let's be in control of what we can be in control of. Mm-hmm. And we, we change things according to what we do. Remember how we started our conversation in that our social environmental up, upbringing will influence us. So we need to take control of those influences around us and actually channel them to make us healthier and have a better mindset. And that is the core of my work is we can't control everything and we, don't, we shouldn't control everything, but we can control more than we realise. So on that note, let's look at how we can respond rather than react. The circumstances that we find ourselves in, are there any hints, tips, exercises that you can suggest to people in order to lower their cortisol, increase their dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin so that they can control their response to the situation? This word control, some people misunderstand it's like you're trying to be aggressive about things. It's not. What we're trying to do is we are trying to control a situation that can make us very unhealthy. So, for instance, if you're for spiraling out of control at the moment because you haven't got you haven't got a footing anywhere that's making you feel safe, then putting the routines into your day by controlling those routines gives you a you calm down because you are controlling something. So when it comes to, we all know that exercise is one of the best things we can do. Moving is important, especially because we're sitting on our bottoms looking at the screen so much. So we need to exercise. So if you actually decided that you were going to have some exercise, make it a certain time of day and you're quite religious about it because then you feel in control of doing that. That helps start calming things down. Of course, meditate will help, but some people find meditation incredibly difficult. I prefer meditating as I walk. So I'm actually counting the steps or I'm I'm zoning into actually what I'm doing. And that's, I find very helpful for me. We all know that eating properly is sensible. We all know that drinking enough water is sensible. We all know these things, but are we actually doing them? 
So the, the key is to get some control with your life by doing the things that we know we should be doing. And then you'll start to feel in calmer and be more open-minded and be more creative in your thinking and not so panicked or fearful about what's going on around you. So if we take this into the commercial context, many managers have been essentially grown up being proximate to their team members. And now all of a sudden, they're having to do all of their management virtually. What advice would you give to managers in order to help on the pastoral side? Let's start with that, with members of their team who are going to be feeling isolated, who may be feeling lonely, who are uncertain. They're afraid of all the volatility that's going on. What advice would you give to managers? Well, you've only got so much time in the day. So I strongly suggest that you um, very much look after your direct reports by by regular conversations, by being transparent, and your direct reports do the same with their direct reports. However, we have got, I see emerging now, I'm working with companies a lot who need help um, to bring the workforce back into the workplace and how to do that. And I can see that we've got, we're almost getting um, two camps emerging. For instance, we have the introverts and the extroverts. The extroverts were hating lockdown. They want to get back into the office. The introverts were loving lockdown. They don't want to get back into the office. So how are we going to meet that? So, okay, lovely, kind, dear leader, boss person, I'm going to accommodate both these people. Some can be back in the office. Some can stay working from home because I am now a forward-thinking business leader. Ah, but person business leader, what do you do with those people who are working from home and do not come into the office, so therefore are not necessarily on your radar and may miss promotion, where those people who are in the office, if you're in the office too, they will are more likely to be favoured for promotion because you've got a better relationship with them. That's not fair either. So how are we going to work with that one? Personally, from what's transpiring from my work at the moment, is that we are going to need the workforce to be doing both so that nobody is favoured. We've got, this is a really, really interesting time for diversity and inclusion. And we have to be inclusive, even though a lot of our people are working online. So we, how can you do that when you've got some in the office, some not? Or how can you do that if there nobody's in the office? That's a different story. That's a totally different argument. But you can see what's, how it's coming about now. There's a whole new set of dynamics that have to be considered. So what are the questions that managers should be asking themselves if they want good answers to those problems? First of all, do you want these people to stay? In all honesty, should the business be downsizing a little bit? Should it be shrinking a little bit? Do you want all of these people to stay on the workforce? If the answer is yes, then you have to work really hard in building relationships with your key reports or indeed the whole team if you have the time and the capacity. So that means that that means you need to find out how people are thinking, how people are feeling. What are their motivations? Do they change? Have they got illness in the family? And there's going to be all sorts of things that you won't know. And if you don't know, that person will not feel heard. And if that person doesn't feel heard, they won't feel significant. And if they don't feel significant, they will not be contributing properly to the workforce. So we need to help them feel that they are part of a team that cares enough about one another. 
Now, it sounds all, I get people going, oh, that's a bit pink and fluffy, all this caring business. We don't want to talk about this pink, fluffy stuff. Well, actually, you do. You really, really do, because it's the relationships with your people that are going to make your ride easier and more progressive. So we need to be asking people how they're feeling, what they're thinking. We need to be asking people for their help. We need to say, look, this is where we're at. I need your help. I need your input. What are, what are your ideas? I don't care how crazy they are. Tell me anything. Tell me about Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse. I don't care. Just tell me anything and let's put everything out on the table and see where we can move forward. I'm seeing a lot of managers falling into the trap of rescuing. And I define rescuing as helping without boundaries or permission. And the net result of that is that they disempower their people and they become a bottleneck, they end up creating learned helplessness. And by doing that, they get run ragged. And so they create more work for themselves. And you, I don't know whether that's a peculiarly British thing, um, but I'm seeing that happen very, very often with uh, a number of um, my clients. Many years ago, back in the 1980s, my husband worked for Wang Corporation. Um, yeah. they were one of the biggest competitors for IBM in the computer industry. And towards the mid-80s, I think it was, do not hold me to these dates, it's a long time ago now. It towards was the, the mid-80s, yeah, Wang got into an awful lot of trouble financially. Now, Dr. Wang, the founder, was poorly. He had throat cancer. And we went to the annual conference, which was always incredibly opulent and totally amazing, really amazing. I was in this massive ballroom full of salespeople who were mostly men, and I'm a visitor, I'm an outsider, mostly men in those days, and they had been there, seen it, done it. There was nothing new you could actually tell them about running a business or, or selling large amounts of kit. And uh, they were already creating their CVs, making them brand new so that they were going to jump ship because Wang was in such trouble. And unexpectedly, everyone thought Dr. Wang was um, at home trying to recover. He walked on stage and you could have heard a pin drop. Absolutely incredible. Dr. Wang, Wang walked on stage and he spoke in a really gravelly voice because of the throat cancer. And he just said to everyone, he said, I know how hard you've all been working. Thank you. I know you realise the company's in trouble, but I'm asking for your help. Can you please help me? I kid you not. I've never seen a standing ovation like it in my life. <laughs> and they would not sit down. Grown men were crying. I get choked up just thinking about it. Grown men, it was just incredible. I'm, now, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that the people who are listening are going to do such a thing, but ask for help. I, I, you've, touched, you've touched on something really crucial which is that vulnerability is a strength. The, the Latin root, vulnerabilis, means to make yourself woundable, to put yourself in harm's way and do it anyway. And it takes an enormous amount of courage to ask for help, to be vulnerable, to open yourself up to criticism, to being shot down, to being ridiculed. But it is a sign of a massively strong leader I can't remember which company it was. There was um, one of the drugs that had to be recalled. And 
the CEO just got ahead of it as soon as they found out that that some of the drugs had been tampered with by some malintent. He got ahead of it and took all of the drugs off the shelf. It cost them billions, but it was the right thing to do. And it created the right kind of uh, response from the general public, from the press, from the staff, from the patients. Everybody appreciated the fact that they were open, they were authentic. And this, again, is another fundamentally important factor. If you want to stay out of drama and psychological gameplay, there's a wonderful model that was developed by a transactional analysis researcher called Dr. A.C. Choi, and it's called the Winner's Triangle. And it's vulnerable, nurturing and empathic, and assertive. And if you adopt those three positions, and I think Dr. Stephen Cartman created something called the Compassion Triangle, and it's vulnerable, nurturing, I think, and uh, compassionate. That's really important here is that you take your ego out of the frame because ego thrives on drama and drama fuels ego. So when you're working with your clients, what is it that what are the triggers that you see that cause someone's ego to get hooked? And what, what's the neuroscience behind the ego, if that's even possible to describe? People um, respond badly when they're frightened. They shoot from the hip when they are, feel like they're a rabbit caught in the headlights. People um, in senior positions feel that they are meant to be, sometimes, forgive me, not always, sometimes feel they are meant to be seen as omnipotent. It's not true. People want to see a human being. They want to see that you are a decent person. The thing is, you see, what happens is in the brain, we park people in friend or foe compartments. And we really need to be in the friend compartment. But it's very difficult for business leaders to do this sometimes. There's a skill to showing vulnerability, showing respect for your people, but equally maintaining the role of being the leader. Because that's, that's what we need to do. We, people are looking for leadership. People are looking for somebody who's going to say, right, this is, well, this is the direction we're going in. They will go, okay, if they feel that you've listened to them, but equally, if they feel that you've, you're coming from a place of integrity and you don't park somebody in this friend or foe, these friend or foe boxes, you've got to put them in this friend box that this person is actually not an alien. This person is one of us which means that, but this person is also going to be our leader. So that's what's happening. And this is one of the things with oxytocin as well, is the oxytocin actually does have a dark side. So when we have trust somebody, when we trust people, and um, we have to only a certain extent stimulated oxytocin, because it's by no means in the secretions of when we are hugging people or when we are giving birth or whatever. But when we, when we have gained that trust and stimulated these chemicals, if that person then lets us down, we demonize them. It's worse than putting them in the faux box. We demonize them. They are worse than if we hadn't trust them in the first place. So it's very important for leaders to realize that, it, that the vulnerability is great, but don't fox people. People aren't stupid. You know, we need, we need to be transparent in, in everything we're doing. Okay, clearly there might be some things that are best said, not said with the keep with the shareholders or whatever. But Mostly, when you're actually running a business that is about leadership and management, 
then we need we need to be very clear. We need to gain their trust. We need to keep their trust, and we do need to show vulnerability with compassion. I've read a very interesting book a few years back on how decisions are made, and they have a formula. And now it may be something you'd shoot down. But if we're going into a situation with another person with negative preferences, negative expectations, with prejudices, and we compare that with our reality, then the chances are we will have an emotional reaction. So it will be our lower brain function that will be taking over, and it's a reflex, often defensive. Whereas if we're going into a conversation or a touch point with somebody, where our preferences and our expectations are positive. We're not bringing any baggage. We're not bringing any prejudice. And we then compare that with reality as we perceive it. Then we're more likely to be able to give a rational response. And what what I'd like to explore is how we can really tap into using our adult ego state, our rational brain, in order to work through problems once we've managed to calm down our amygdala and our lower brain function so that we can really concentrate on coming up with solutions that deliver the result that we were hoping for and meet the expectations of uh, ourselves and the people that we're meant to be supporting and uh, managing. For me, when I'm working with people and it's decision time in the boardroom or whatever, they lament often, I hear from the CEO, everyone's just agreed this, and now no one's done anything about it. I hear that a huge amount. And the reason that is, is because people haven't taken on board what was said. It's not come from them, or they've just given it a cursory nod and gone on about their day doing other things that are probably equally as important, or they're just as busy. One of the things that we is a good idea is to, at the start of any meeting, when people come together to make a decision, is first of all, I think, it's a good idea for for the the question, the problem, the issue to be out on the table the day before the meeting and for everybody to be told that this is what we're going to be talking about tomorrow, this is what we need to fix, this is where we're moving forward and I want you all to sleep on it and I want you to come up with, be coming into the boardroom tomorrow at 10 o'clock or whatever and I want you to tell me your ideas and everybody's going to have an equal voice And I don't care how mad those ideas are. I don't mind. Now, one of the things that those people will probably toddle off for is, oh, I'll ignore that. Somebody, The one who does all the talking, they can do that. They can run with it. I'm just going to sit quietly and whatever. No, the the whole point is everybody gets an equal voice. Now, you know when you wake wake up in the morning, you're not quite awake, you're not quite quite asleep. Um, You're just in that lovely, luxurious place that that you get these ideas, you get these creative ideas going on, all these ideas that you just quickly write it down on a notepad because you've just come up with this thought. That's when the brain is in alpha frequency. Now, if we can control that, we can make sure our brain goes in alpha frequency at various times during the day. We can do that by staring out of the window, watching the rainfall. We can do that by meditating. We can do that by... It's a light, like a light meditative state, like a daydreaming state. And that is a very creative place. Now, if we told our people, right, go home, sort this question problem out in your heads, and in the morning, don't come into the office quite as early or don't have the meeting quite so early. Just lay in bed and just wallow and see what ideas pop into your head. 
that's what I want you to come to the table with. Then they come to the table the following day, virtually or not, and they everybody talks about these mad ideas, these all sorts of things, and it's fun. There's energy there because people are going, oh, right, okay, and somebody says something really stupid and you've got humour, and, you know, and people laugh, not at people, but, but they're laughing with you because the idea is just silly or crazy, and then you gradually whittle it down to what maybe could work, and that's what you then discuss. I think, yeah, I th- I think you've touched on two really important points here, which is that if an action is, needs to be taken then an individual needs to take personal responsibility for seeing it through and a deadline needs to be agreed by when they will deliver it. Someone needs to be accountable for the overall solution and you need to divide those responsibilities, accountabilities, consultations and being informed up. And I I think one of the other things that, uh, in fact, we've devised the process called the Team Storm tool, which I'm going to share on the screen now, which mirrors what Linda's been talking about very closely. And what it does is you have the role of the facilitator, and their job is to direct, but not to judge. Their role is to clarify, summarize, and develop the ideas and assist the team. Everyone else is there to share as many ideas as possible, make suggestions, build on those suggestions. So combine ideas and be supportive and not judge. And the first step is to have a problem statement or a problem question, which is concise. And then provide the background as to how we got here and what we're trying to achieve. And then a free flow um, formation of ideas, as many as humanly possible. And uh, within a specific time frame, let's say 20 minutes, and they just rattle them out and the scribe knocks them up on the whiteboard or on the flip chart. And it's quantity over quality. What we're looking for is a high degree of active engagement and a lot of creative thinking. Then the team votes on which ideas they would like to go for. And we do this through a process of an initial vote. So everyone has maybe three or four votes. And then we work out which ones are the highest priority. And if out of 70 ideas, 12 of them are picked, having maybe five or more votes, then we prioritize those until we narrow it down to maybe three or four ideas. And then the top choices become actionable and we define who does what by when. And this is an incredibly powerful tool for solving pretty much any gnarly problem that you might be facing. So if anyone would like a copy of the Team Storm tool, then I'll tell you at the end how to get it. Excellent, excellent. The only thing you have to watch is that you make sure everybody's included in this process. Absolutely. It's really important that somebody doesn't feel that somebody's had, you know, had the, had the um, held the button for too long and they're feeling not heard or irrelevant because they'll just clam up and not contribute ever again and, and not and not embrace the actions that are required. Yeah, great model. There is a company, in fact, it's the Pentacle Virtual Business School that was founded by Dr. Eddie Obeng. And he's developed a virtual 3D environment called Cube. Now, what's really interesting about Cube is it encourages introverts and also non-English speakers to contribute significantly. And he uses it as a platform for uh, managing change. 
And he's not had a single program that didn't work. Now, bear in mind, 88% of change programs fail. I lie. I think he's got something like a 96% success rate as opposed to an 88% failure rate. And what's really fascinating is that in the environment, they have avatars. They don't put photographs of themselves up. They have little cartoon characters of themselves. They have this 3D environment. So you have breakout rooms, you have white wall, uh, whiteboards, you have a hopes and fears board at the beginning. There's clear objectives set right from the outset. And everybody is encouraged to collaborate. And the net result of this is that they're able to create massive change with extremely limited budgets where in the NHS and in the charity sector, for example, they're under massive pressure. They always are because of lack of cash and lack of resources. And they're able to create change programs around mental health, elder care, uh, so on, in order to deliver long-term lasting change. Because I think one of the most important things that we can do is not just go with the latest fly-by-night idea or the latest fad. And I think another huge problem that we see, and I think this builds on your earlier point, is that what we're looking for is evidence that proves our current position is the right thinking. And the net result of that confirmation bias is that we tend to exclude ideas. And if we can create an environment where we are inclusive and we encourage diverse thinking and we put all these ideas into a melting pot and we work at them from different angles, then we feel like we own them. And that builds on your earlier point, that people have to feel like it's their data. Because if it's just imposed, then that almost guarantees failure. Oh, you, you will encourage conflict straight away. You'll, you'll encourage people digging their heels in and not moving. This is one of the, the issues that's going on at the moment, even with wearing a mask. People are being told People need to want to do things. So it's how we come about these, these actions that is really, really important. And I think the cube model sounds fantastic. I'll put you in touch with Eddie, if you like, because I think uh, you and he will really hit it off. My question is this, then. If we are social animals, which we are, you know, we can't get away from our mammalian roots, and we, we are social by nature. So isolation is something that feels painful. In fact, the worst punishment in ancient times was exile rather than execution because essentially it meant you'd die a slow and lingering death with massive uncertainty and terror around every corner. And my question is, given how we are a social species, why more emphasis and more focus has not been given to our social responsibility to the rest of our community and the rest of humanity. Because I think what seems to have happened, particularly in Western culture, is that we've been encouraged for you know, the last few thousand years to become more and more individualistic and more selfish. Whereas if we look at many Eastern cultures, and I'm not saying all of them, but there's much more of a communal responsibility. Are you seeing, do you see differences there at a neuroscientific level in terms of, how people are programmed, uh, the way the, uh, the brains respond to a crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Again, um, the brain will wire according to how, what, what has been going on around it. So, yeah, definitely this isolation thing and needing to be sociable has been very badly ignored. 
consider people elderly in care homes at the moment. We've got to keep people safe. We've got to keep them well. We've got to keep the virus away from them. But it's torture. It's torture that they can't see their loved ones. It's torture that they can't hug the people that they love. They can't see the people even. So we're not, it is very, very painful. And there are certain areas in the brain that are activated with physical pain and emotional pain. They, they overlap. So um, it, it, it can feel like a physical problem. So we are, it, it, the knock-on effects of the isolation and the, the lack of social consideration, I think, is, is a mistake. I agree. Tell me, what, what are three questions people should be asking but they don't about how neuroscience can be applied in the world of business? What does it mean to me? If I come up with, we've talked about several things in neuroscience, if I come up with an idea about how, you know, decision-making um, and what happens in the brain, then the business people I work with go, oh, right, now I get it. Okay, I'll do that then, because science has supported their actual their goal at that moment. So the sort of questions people would ask if somebody has got is talking about neuroscience or brain speak, whatever, it's like, so what does that actually mean to me? What does it actually mean right now? And how can I use that tomorrow morning at nine o'clock? Because that's the key. That's what I bang on about all the time. Because what's the, otherwise, what's the point? It's all very interesting, but people haven't got the time to listen to this stuff when all, actually all they might want to do is go home and collapse in front of the TV at nine o'clock and hopefully not watch the news. Um, you know, <laughs> so, so it's... So it's it's those questions. Always, always, if you're talking to somebody about neuroscience and they're talking to you about your business saying, so what? Why is it relevant? Why is it relevant to me now? They're the sort of questions people need to be asking. Any others? In terms of neuroscience, I would be asking who says. I would definitely say if they come up with love, who says. So therefore, they, um, and, and, they yeah. Say. Yeah, who says? <laughs> Show me the data. Show me the research. They won't want to read the research because it's too long. But it, but you, if you come, the references. Well, okay, this is what these scientists discovered, and this is why I'm saying this. However, there is another load of scientists over here that are saying X, Y, Z, which is different from A, B, C. But in your situation, I think this is we could go into this camp rather than this one to be more helpful. Then make then that's worth it. That's valuable. To build on your point, when you see some conspiracy or some volatile piece of news, look for the source of that information. Because when you dig, more often than not, it's some extreme think tank or someone funded by a political interest group. And what's been really interesting, I mean, there's um, a story floating around at the moment that Walgreen have been providing cupboards with the bodies of dead children that uh, Jeffrey Epstein and uh, the Clintons were uh, involved in abusing. Now, you you have to, I mean, who knows? But the balance of probability is you should question where that story came from, who instigated it, and what their motive behind it was. Because uh, an online retailer, doing that, I suspect would damage their business quite substantially if the story ever got out. And there's no way it wouldn't. So we we need to be really smarter, much smarter in terms of how we consume our media. 
So what advice would you give people? I know that you said, you know, who says, but what advice would you give as a, a litmus test to see whether or not we should believe what we're being told? Because at the moment, no one really has, can have trust in state media or in uh, public broadcasting without raising a question whether a story has veracity. What advice would you give? Honestly, it does boil down to who says. You've got to question the source of this information. Check it out. Check it out. It's actually quite easy to check out. People see on social media things and they respond instantly. And then you get this lather of angst or, or aggression or somebody's threatened because their opinion has been violated or they think it's been violated or questioned anything. I get exasperated with social media because of that. But there is so much out there that is coming from nothing. And if people believe it, they will hold on to that belief, even if you've told them or you've shown them research that that, that, that wipes it off, off the board game. You know, even if you show them evidence that that is not true, they will go, because they believed it, they don't want to look silly. Is it really that they don't want to look silly or they're just uh, emotionally uh, attached? Because I think attachment is a really powerful negative force in many cases because people can't let go. Even if the evidence is there that a, a vote, I mean, without wanting to drag myself into a mire here, whether Brexit was the right or wrong decision is yet to be seen. But the evidence seems to be stacking up that it will have, at least in the short to medium term, a negative impact. But logic and reason and the evidence doesn't seem to make any difference to people who are leavers. Equally, Remainers can't seem to let go of the, the, the idea that there is much wrong in Europe and that all leavers are racist bigots who don't have the country's best interests at heart. And so we end up in this keyboard warrior type of, type of scenario, which is really where I'd like to lead this to. Why is it when you're not face-to-face with somebody, that you can suddenly become so lathered up when you would never dream of behaving the way that people do over social media. What, what's the science behind that? It's being anonymous. Are you? Yeah. Uh, often it's your, it's your name and photograph on there. Yeah, but you feel as if you're not seen. You're typing on a computer on your own in your home and you feel as if you're not seen. You're, you feel as if nobody can, can argue against you, even though clearly they would, but you can come, you can Google something and, and, and respond to them. Whereas if you're in, a, in an environment where you're face-to-face with people, they wouldn't dream of saying half they're saying, A, because it's hurtful, B, because actually people could say, no, actually that's not true. That's not true because of X, Y, Z. So they're being questioned. So there is this almost like um, an invisible cloak that people put over them. And it, it brings out some of the nastiest sides of people's personalities. And I think also we have this, when the algorithms in social media are such that once the algorithms work out the sort of thing that you Google, you only get the news that feeds your biases. So therefore, you've got this reinforcement going on around you because everything you're reading, which is being fed by the social media and whatever you're clicking on, is so different from when you read newspapers. Now, okay, newspapers are biased. Yes, we all know that one new paper is left-wing, one is right-wing, and so on and so forth. But at least you can pick up 
another newspaper, or if you're only reading one newspaper, you're going to see a breadth of information. But nowadays, we're being fed such a narrow library of information that confirms our beliefs that we we think we rise to this as being like everyone else is wrong, and we have we shoot from the hip. So there's a few things I think, and actually, it's more than that. There's probably loads of things going on. What I've tried to do, but it, again, because of the way the algorithms work, I think it continues to feed my biases, is I've connected with and I follow people whose opinions make me froth in order that I'm exposed to those opinions. But if I'm not liking their material, then chances are I'm not going to be fed a lot of that information. So I'll only get at least a slanted version of uh, what's real or what's uh, what might be considered news. And I'm curious if there's a way that we can work around this. I mean, because it strikes me that if we want to, first of all, get to what's real rather than what our imagination conjures up, and we want to get away from our biases, then we have to very proactively seek out information that we may disagree with and actually engage with it and then have conversations with these people so that, first of all, we're hearing what they have to say, even if we vehemently disagree with them. But that strikes me as a huge amount of effort, which I can't see, you know, I've made some effort to do that. But when uh, people who I'm not keen on post, I find it difficult to do anything other than disagree with them um, and if I do, then I run the risk of being reviled by their supporters, which, frankly, I'm not overly worried about because uh, I'm not in America and the chances are no one's going to shoot me. But it strikes me that in order to get access to good quality information and to be able to make rational decisions, the best thing to do probably is get off social media, isn't it? Got a strong point, but there's a few things going on there. First of all, our biases are for very good reason. They're a, a side effect of heuristics, and heuristics are shortcuts in the brain. So everything that we do, we've got to get into unconscious processing as quickly as possible so we can focus our attention, which is very narrow, on what we need at that moment that's going on. So a lot of it is automatic, unconscious processing. The effect of that is we look at something and, oh, that's got four legs and a tail and it's got whiskers. It must be a cat. Okay, and it actually might be something totally different. But we put that that image into a box that says cat. And then we, the side effects, I say, are the biases. And to be honest with you, Marcus, the only people that don't have biases are dead people. It does not make us a bad person. It is normal. What is unhelpful is if we allow those biases to dictate our decisions in a wrong way or indeed make us aggressive to people who do not fit in the, to a, comp- a particular com- compartment in our heads. And therefore, we are now leaning towards our perceptions. Now, our, our perceptions are always unique because we build a perception today built on all of our perceptions before, and the mathematical equation is enormous. So our perceptions will always be unique to us. And no one, if anyone says to you, I know exactly how you feel, Marcus, no, they don't, because mm-hmm. they don't know what it's like to be you. They don't. Okay. So uh, we uh, we, to understand one another, the best we can ever do is is show compassion. 
we will never truly understand them. The best you can do is that, okay? You know, don't know what it's like to be someone else ever. On top of that, with this aggression on social media, I actually think we should go back to having debating societies. Oh, yes. Yeah, we've lost the art. We've lost the art to debate in a sensible, intelligent way and be open to having our mind changed because of the evidence that whoever's debating can, can show us. That is really useful. That is really healthy. I don't know. I think of starting a debating society. because it's, I'm in. <laughs> it's a lost skill or, or a skill that we're losing fast and it's to our detriment. Well, I'm f- very pleased that next week I'm going to be interviewing a specialist in rhetoric. So um, maybe the three of us can form it. Sounds good fun. Tell me this, Linda, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Time. I don't have enough of it. (laughs) No one ever does. How are you prioritising what you choose to spend your time on? Well, there you go. At the moment, I'm so, so busy and have been for some time that I tend to respond or react to the most urgent, which is no way to live because it means all of the other things that would be helpful in my business development and my own development are put to one side and the to-do list gets longer and those things stay at the bottom of the list. So for me, what I have to do and I'm trying to do now is create space so that I have more thinking time and more time to plan and I want to do more research. Uh, um, and yeah, so that, that's the issue is actually, it's not time management. It's nothing like that. It is working out a priority, my priorities and working to those. Interesting. A, a very useful exercise that I've worked with a lot of my clients is time blocking and specifically setting time aside for high value, high priority activities. and establishing clear boundaries as to what you say no to and learning how to say no gracefully is a fabulous skill for those of you who struggle with this a great way of saying no is linda thank you this sounds and feels important unfortunately it would mean i would have to break another commitment which i can't do so on this occasion i'm going to have to say no but thank you so much for thinking of me and Learn to just push it away and say no. You know, that what you say no to matters so much more than what you say yes to. Because if we fall into the trap of people pleasing uh, or trying to satisfy everybody, we end up satisfying nobody. And that's a really dissatisfying place to find yourself. I was coaching one of my clients earlier on today, and she has taken on so much that isn't really her problem. And she absolutely needs to learn how to say no, how to set boundaries, how to say no going up the chain of command, and how to establish clarity in terms of what she has to do so that she can focus on the high-value activities that get help her get the job done, but also give her satisfaction. Because I think you, you have to be quite selfish uh, in this process. Because if you, do, if you don't look after yourself, then you're not going to be around to look after other people. No, totally right. I agree with you. In fact, I have been I have been turning work away recently 
because A, I, I just don't have the time and B, um, it may not have been the right fit and C, I know that I am not omnipotent, you know, I, I've owned, it's just me. So I'm very careful about my clients and how I serve them. And I'm very loyal to my clients. So I look after them. Once a client, always a client. So I, I always look after them. But there has been a, a knock-on effect because of COVID. I've been interviewed so much, four or five times a week by the radio, loads of radio stations and all sorts of things because of these very strange times. I mean, I love it. I love being interviewed. And, and I'm very grateful that you've asked me on this. Thank you, Marcus. I think now that we are apparently coming out of lockdown, I think now is the time to be rethinking how I spend my time to the best value for my business and for my personal life. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. Fabulous. Linda, tell me, you said how can we apply it in our own world? What would you recommend people read, watch or listen to so that they can see the application of neuroscience and how they can use it in their own world? Well, I've got lovely, lovely favourite authors in neuroscience, Oliver Sacks being one, but Oliver mm. does, um, yeah, what, Musicophilia, um, just a magnificent book. If you want to read something that's beautifully written and not written in the esoteric, which drives me nuts, and it's uh, it's just gives you a lovely, lovely insight into neuroscience, but it doesn't have an application in terms of business. I dare I say my little book is very helpful for neuroscience in an, in, in an applied way. Your brain is boss, but that's that's a plug. Sorry, folks. Sorry, right, you can have a plug. Okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah, Your Brain is Boss is written as a, a foundation in neuroscience, but very much applied to business scenarios. And it, it covers a broad spectrum of topics, problem solving, judgments, decision making, emotion in business, so on and so forth. So yeah, it's on Amazon if you are interested. Otherwise, I think if anybody is interested in just understanding why neuroscience is so amazing, Oliver Sacks is a great start. Absolutely. And a lot of Richard Wiseman stuff I found very interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got a golden ticket and you can whisper in the ear of Linda, age 23, who knew everything, thought she was invincible and immortal. What would you whisper in her ear as a choice bit of advice? Well, she wasn't as confident as she thought she was. That youthful confidence actually hides a lot of insecurities. So I would be saying to her, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's all going to be fine. It's absolutely all going to be fine. Follow your heart. Follow what your gut tells you. You now know that the gut-gut feel is the enteric nervous system is incredible. And there's more and more research going on about it. But there's a, a very good reasons to listen to your gut, especially if it's in a situation where you are an expert. So go with your gut and just let it go and have fun. Don't take yourself too seriously. Fabulous. Linda, how can people get hold of you? I'm Linda with a Y. So it's Linda at drlindashaw.com or www.drlindashaw.com. That's me. Fabulous. And one more plug for your book. Your brain is boss. It's fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) Even even your mother said so. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. So Dr. Linda Shaw, thank you so much. You're very welcome, Marcus. I had a great time. I hope that was useful. Absolutely. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, then please get in touch at marcuskauke at me.com or mcauchi at sandler.com. 
And if you'd like a copy of the Team Storm tool, then direct message me on LinkedIn, and then I'll tell you how you can get hold of one. So for now, take care, happy selling, stay safe. Bye-bye.